We're in the third chapter of Daniel this morning. If you'll turn there with me. Daniel 3, as we get into it, you'll see is a very familiar account to us all. If you grew up in the church, you've heard about the fiery furnace. Uh, Probably had it in a picture book at some point. Probably had it in a a kid's Bible. Um, If you're old enough like me, you remember the felt boards from like Bible school that people would put on there with that sort of thing. And then there's also the VeggieTales version, uh, which I'm sure people remember. What's that? That's the one I'm familiar with. Exactly, yeah. Um, Rack, Rack, Shack, Rack, Shack, and Benny, that's right. Uh, but as we, go through, as we go through this today, I hope we'll have a picture in my mind that we'll see that this is more than just a kid's story. Um, if you remember back to our introduction of the book of Daniel, there were a number of things that I told you to be looking for as we went through our study. And I, I, I'm sure you all remember the points that I brought up way, way back in our introduction, but I'll remind you of them again just, just in case. Um, one of the examples, one of the things that I said to look out for was the example to live by. And we'll see in the lives, see this in the lives and the responses of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and I call them by their Jewish names. Um, in the account, you'll see it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So if I say one and we read the other, just know that we're talking about the same people. Um, So they are examples to live by. Uh, Another thing that we pointed out was that God does not abandon his people. Even though these three men had been taken captive and and basically uh, had been assimilated into the Babylonian nation, they were part of that system of government at this point in time, we'll see in this account that God does not abandon them. We also talked about the short-sightedness of a decadent society. And this one will have to do with a certain king who can't seem to get anything through his head. Uh, Even though in the last chapter, back in chapter 2, he was given a clear picture of the power of God and who God is, he doesn't seem to remember that um, when we come to chapter 3. And then finally, uh, I told you to be looking out for God is sovereign over all the earth. And God is once again going to give King Nebuchadnezzar a reminder of just who it is who's in charge. Um, It's not quite the same reminder that he will give him when we get to chapter 4, but it will be a reminder nonetheless. And so see, these are some of the things that we're going to see in our study of the chapter if you look for these points um, and keep an eye out for them as we go through this chapter. So let's get right into verse 1 of chapter 3, and we get the context right in the first verse of what's taking place here. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now this is the basis for all that's going to take place throughout this chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a great image, a golden image, and sets it up in this plain of Dura. Now it's possible, when we talk about the time frame, when you, when you go from chapter to chapter, there's, there's jumps in time. Um, It's possible that this could be as much as 40 years after the events of chapter 2. Some scholars think that. Some think it was 40. Some think it may have been 20. Um, But I tend to agree with those who say that this was probably still very early on, uh, probably just a few years after the events of chapter 2. And that's really because of the events here and what's going on, this image that Nebuchadnezzar is creating. What is he making? 
He's making a golden image, a humongous golden image. Probably not made out of solid gold. Babylon was known for its use of gold, but an image this size made out of solid gold would have been probably used up far more gold than what even Babylon could, could come up with. But it was probably an image that was covered with gold. It was, it, was, um, it was represented by gold in some way. Now, think back to chapter 2 for just a minute. Do you remember the dream that we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar in his dream saw in that image a humongous statue. Now, that was an image of a man that was standing right there before him. Now, if you remember what that statue was made out of, it was made out of various metals. But what aspect of the statue do you suppose stood out the most in Nebuchadnezzar's mind? The head of gold in that dream, right? Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And I think it was really what Daniel told him in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 2, where he said, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. From that point on, after Daniel told him that, I think Nebuchadnezzar, um, when Daniel was telling him the rest of the dream, I think Nebuchadnezzar had this blah, 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 blah kind of thing going on in his head. He was just told, you are the head of gold. You are the king of kings. He's sitting there, I'm the head of gold, the king of kings, the power, the strength, the glory, I rule over them all. I think... Personally, I don't think he ever really probably got past that point. I think he was paying attention at the time that Daniel was telling him all this, but when he was done with that whole, it, that whole episode and, and days go past, I think he came away from that whole thing with, I am the head of gold. Are you saying that people hear what they want to hear? Exactly, yeah, 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 quite possibly. After all was said and done, Nebuchadnezzar comes away, I'm the head of gold. And as a result... He ends up creating this statue to himself, a statue that somehow represents himself as a tribute to his own greatness. Now, we're not told what this statue looks like. Um, so it may have been the image of a man. Um, it may have been, had something to do with the king's likeness. But as we go through this, I think the context will indicate that the image somehow was representative of Nebuchadnezzar himself, whether it was his likeness or whether it was something else. Um, but I think the point is that it represents him in some way. He was convinced that he had glory coming to him, and he was ready to receive it. And so I believe that this place takes place not very long after the events of chapter 2, although really the timing isn't, isn't all that critical to what takes place here. Now, there has been discussion on just where this image stood, right? It talks about it being stood up in the plain of Dura. The problem is that no one is really sure what the plain of Dura or where the plain of Dura really was. Um, there have been a few archaeological digs around the region that have found large stone slabs, slabs that could have held an image like this statue that they're describing here, um, with one of them being about six miles south of where Babylon was. But in the end, nobody really knows for sure what this plain is, but it was somewhere around Babylon or close to Babylon. So this image, this tremendous monument is created somewhere close to Babylon, and it represents the king of Babylon. Well, now what? Well, now it's time to, 
to dedicate it, right? If, if Nebuchadnezzar is going to build this huge statue and if he wants it to represent himself, he's not just going to build it in the middle of a field and just let it sit. He's going to dedicate it. So look at chapter or verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the, mag- the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So this is a big deal. He calls out everybody, from satraps down to provincial rulers. Now, for time, we won't look at what all these groups are or who they were, um, but what's important to know is that everyone of any importance or station in the kingdom is called to this dedication. Right? They are called to come in to uh, see this statue be dedicated. Now, an interesting thing happens in the very next verse. Look at verse 3. Then... The satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What does Daniel do when he writes this? He gives us that entire list again. Right? He repeats it line by line, person by person, position by position in verse 2 and verse 3. In fact, as I understand it, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that version leaves out chapter three, or verse 3. I don't know why I keep saying chapter. Leaves out verse 3 because it was seen as redundant. It was seen seen as silly to list this entire list again, verse after verse. Daniel could have just said, All these people came in verse 2, and in verse 3 he could have said, and they all came for the dedication and stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Would have been much shorter to say, would have been much shorter to write, but instead verse 3 is a mirror image of verse 2. And so some question why Daniel would write this again. And I think what this shows us is a contrast between all of these key leaders in Babylon and what we're going to see when we get to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. That there were three or four exceptions, yeah. Because he's listing out all of these people, right? Everybody in the kingdom. And he lists them twice. And I think... Intentionally I th- lists them twice. What's that? Intentionally lists them twice. Yeah. So that he can tell you that there were four exceptions. Like that there were exceptions to the rule. Yes, there are these other exceptions. So all of these men, all of these groups are coming like sheep. And this is what I think the point is. These are all coming like sheep. Every single one of these men are coming like sheep to the king's dedication. They are, going to, they are all going to worship this image when the king tells them to. Daniel is making sure that, that whoever he's writing this to knows that every single person, every single other person that was called and dedicated to this image, or called to the dedication of this image, did bow down and worship the image. I don't want to spoil it. We haven't gotten there yet, but you all know I think where we're going with this, right? So by listing them out, we get an idea of the magnitude of the pressure that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are under here. And we see the lack of integrity of all of these others that the king calls in uh, to this dedication. And that's exactly what we see in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. 
So there's a herald here in this whole assembly, and he makes this announcement to the peoples, nations, and men of every language. So you get the idea. This is no small gathering. This isn't just a sampling of all these different groups. This is a huge congregation of people. There were people gathered from all over, from all over the empire of Babylon, from every corner of the globe as far as the kingdom reached. And what were they to do? They were to fall down and worship this golden image, this testament to Nebuchadnezzar's glory, power, and strength. And to make sure that he got all of the glory um, in typical Nebuchadnezzar fashion, we see the threat in verse 6. They can't just tell him to do this. There's a threat. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There's your opt-out plan. Everyone, of course, had a choice in this, right? Fall down and worship the king's image, or there's a blazing furnace over here that we can just toss you into. There's, there's your option. Now, po- most people, of course, look at this and say, well, there's no option here. I, I have to do this. But really, this is the point of decision, right? This is the point where character is determined. Whereas one commentator put it, the individual is left to decide between external pressure and internal principle. Do I follow the crowd and the orders of those around me, or do I follow what I know to be right? Now, for this crowd, there wasn't much internal principle to be found, probably. There probably wasn't a whole lot of integrity to be had. This was a crowd of Babylonians. They were of the same character and spiritual depravity as the king would have been. And for most of them, this was probably not an issue, right? They probably worship all kinds of different gods, and whenever the king snapped his fingers, they would worship something else. They would be, okay, if the king wants this, of course I'm going to do what my king wants me to do, because he's my king, and I want to do what he wants me to do. And we see in verse 7 that that's exactly what happens. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. There's, There's no question, there's no hesitation here. Here they all are, gathered in front of this massive statue, this idol, and right on cue, when the music plays, the orchestra is queued up, They fall down and they worship this image, bowing down to the glory of the king or or whatever this statue represented. Just like sheep, like lemmings, one right after the other, no question in their minds, they bow down and worship this image. No reason for the furnace that day, right? They were ready to fall down and worship the image of the king. Nobody even has to worry about the furnace. Well, except, as we know, for one small detail. There were some people there that had some integrity. Look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. So what do we have here? We We have someone pouncing, basically, an attack. The Chaldeans see their chance, and they take it. The Chaldeans here accuse the Jews. Now, if you remember back from chapter 1, There were many Jews who had been taken captive, right? As many as 70 of these young um, men had been taken from Israel or from Judah. But really, here we're only talking about three of them. We're talking about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
We're only talking about the ones who were refusing to compromise. And you remember the Chaldeans, right? We saw them back at the beginning of chapter 2 when they came in to try to interpret the king's dream for him, right? They were part of the wise men of Babylon. In fact, the Chaldeans were the main, the main dudes, right? The Chaldeans were the beloved children among the wise men. When they couldn't interpret the king's dream, but Daniel and his friends could, what happened to the Chaldeans? Well, at that point, they got the short straw. Look back at the end of chapter 2, a page or so, at verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel. This is after the Daniel had interpreted the king's dream. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So who's in charge now? Daniel and his friends are in charge now, right? These Jews are in charge. Daniel's made the head of the wise men, including the head of the Chaldeans. And his three friends are right there underneath him. And how do you think, as the Chaldeans, who are this special elite group of wise men, how do you think that would sit with them? Probably not very well. They had been the wisest of the wise. They had a really good thing going. And here come these Jewish kids with their real God who comes and starts messing things up for them. So for the last several years, they've probably been looking for an opportunity to regain regain their glory. And now this situation here comes and falls into their lap. And they think they can come out ahead by basically eliminating the competition. So they brought charges it says. This phrase indicates a particularly vicious action right? So in, that our English translations don't quite get. right? Our, our translations might say accused, brought charges, denounced. But the literal translation of this word means to eat the morsels or eat the flesh of. It means to devour or destroy. These guys were coming in for the kill for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were, they were like vicious dogs. They were going for the jugular here. And so they come in verse 9. And it says, They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. Right? Long live the king. This is the same type of greeting that they used back in chapter 2 when they came to talk to the king. They want to show their devotion to the king, and they wanted to make a good impression while they were going to throw these three guys under the bus. Verse 10. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, I find this interesting because here come these guys ready to remind the king of what the king had just said, right? We're here to tell you, O king, just what you said, just now, right in front of everyone, just a few minutes ago, we're here to remind you of what you've decreed would happen to anyone who doesn't do what you say. And that's really what they're doing here. They want to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't forget 
what he just said, that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't forget the punishment or the consequences for anyone who doesn't do what he says in this situation. And so they repeat it back, for him, back, back to him word for word, right down to the type of instruments that were playing in the orchestra. So they're relishing this moment. They're taking the king's words and, and using them almost against him. Uh, but they're really kind of jump, you know, pretending like they're jumping on his side. And so that leads them to the heart of the matter in verse 12. So now that he's reminded them, he says in verse, they say in verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. How do you like them apples, O king? You see what's going on here. They have an airtight case. They are trying to show the king that these guys have no regard for him. That these guys, I mean, by saying, you have done this, you have set this up, what you have said, they're trying to make the king understand that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are personally attacking Nebuchadnezzar. So in their eyes, this is an open and shut case. These guys are history. They start off again by reminding the king that he appointed them over the province of Babylon, which is really what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 49. And here we see that these guys have not forgotten about that. They've been bitter about this ever since it happened, whether it was a couple of years or 40 years. They remember that Nebuchadnezzar was the one that put these guys in that position. So they're able to remind Nebuchadnezzar of this, and it makes it that much sweeter. Now, they bring three charges here against them, really. right? They, they say that they've disregarded the king. They want him to see again that this is a personal attack against himself. They say that they don't serve his gods. right? So now they're showing him that the Jews were attacking his god, his religion. So now it's not just disregarding him, but now they're saying they're disregarding your gods as well. And the third thing is that, that they do not worship the golden image. And this is really the heart of the accusation because this is what carried the punishment. Here was this large gathering. All of the leaders of the kingdoms were assembled here and when everyone in the entire place um, bowed down on command, these guys were left standing. Now, we don't know the exact situation. I, I picture it as... Thousands of people standing on a plane and everybody gets down and then you have these three guys that are all just still standing there. Whether it really looked like that or not, I don't know, but that's the picture I have in my mind. Uh, so why is, why is Daniel not covered among these guys? Uh, I get to that later, but we can, we can talk about it now. We don't know is really the answer to that. Um, there, are, there are some suppositions to that. Um, but really, that's all they are. I mean, all we can do is kind of guess or assume. But well, what I was saying, the text says he remained at the side that he remained with the king. So maybe he was with the king, and the king was sitting there basking in his glory or something. I don't know. And mm -hmm. Those three guys are out there administering whoever's under them, and then hey, you guys aren't doing this, and then hey, right. we're gonna go. And so yeah. that's just what I was thinking. Is like, yeah. But, well, know, I didn't know if there was insight. Right. It could, yeah, I mean, it could have been that he was back in Babylon 
and you know somebody was running the shop and he just wasn't called. Could have been he was off on some other business. I think the important thing though, and the only thing that I, I think, the only thing I think that we can say for certain is that there are some people that would say that, well, Daniel obviously bowed down because he wasn't, you know, but I don't think there's any indication that that is even a remote possibility in this. I think you're probably right. I think the king and probably everybody else is in Dura, and then Daniel is back at the, at the palace. Yeah, maybe he's, he, he's watching the shop or he's, uh, he's traveling at this point in time or something along yeah. those lines, yeah, so... But yeah, but for whatever reason, he's not here. And the focus is on, obviously, these guys. Um, okay, so these guys are, whatever the case, these guys are left standing, and now it's been brought to the king's attention. Um, so what is he going to do about it? Now the king is obviously, he has said this, and here are his three guys. And so now, how is he going to handle this, this public uh, infraction against his orders? Um, now, here's what's interesting, I think, about these charges. And I don't, I don't want to miss this. They were all true. These Chaldeans were 100% in their accusations against these guys. Some say that the first one wasn't true because they had faithfully served the king, and that's true. They had faithfully served the king up to this point. But in this context, with the orders that had been given by the king, they were disregarding his orders. They were refusing to do what the king had commanded. But instead, they were doing what? They were doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And we'll see that more as we go along here. But at any rate, they refused to bow down. The Chaldeans had caught them, and they brought it to the king's attention. Right? I, I sit there and think to myself, I, I, the Chaldeans catching them. I wasn't going to talk about this, but I, I got to mention it. The Chaldeans catching them. You wonder, how do these guys see them? Right? I look at it like little kids. You know, when my kids would tell me, oh, he didn't have his eyes closed when he was praying. And you say, how do you know? Because obviously you didn't either, right? Well, these Chaldeans obviously weren't really involved in this worship, but they were looking out to see who wasn't bowing down, right? Anyway, that's just an aside. But the Chaldeans bring it to his attention. So in typical flat fashion, here's the character of Nebuchadnezzar, he flies into a rage, verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Once again, we get a glimpse of Nebuchadnezzar's character here, right? He must have been known as a hothead, at least to Daniel. Um, and we saw this same temper from Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 when he became indignant and very furious in verse 12, when the Chaldeans couldn't do what he asked. So now here, he wasn't just in a rage, and he wasn't just filled with anger, he was both in a rage and filled with anger. And that paints a pretty good picture of the temper of the king of Babylon, and, and it, it's going to get even worse as we go along. So as in, his, in his enraged state, he orders that these three guys be brought to, before him. Where are they? Bring them, bring them here. So there's a definite rift here, right? These were Nebuchadnezzar's guys. Um, we, just, we saw just a little while ago that the king had appointed them over the administration of the province of Babylon. And remember, that was at Daniel's request, but the king was pleased to do it. Back in chapter 1, at the end of their three-year training period, remember what we saw there. In verse 19 of chapter 1, they entered into the king's personal service. 
And he had found them at that point in time to be 10 times better than anyone else when it came to wisdom and understanding. They would personally consult with the king. So these were the king's guys. These were his wise men, and they were in his personal service. They were the administrators of the main province of his kingdom. But now they had dared to cross him, and the king was enraged at them. And look what happens when they're brought before the king there in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? So he presents these charges to him. This is what they've been accused of. Is what they're saying true? Is what they're accusing you of true? Have you refused to serve my gods? Have you refused to worship this statue that I've set up? So he asks them this question. But before they can answer, the king is going to give them a second chance. Right? He doesn't even give them time to answer. He says in verse 15, Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So stop right there for a second, the end of the verse. The command is repeated. This is the same thing that the herald had announced previously to the assembled crowd. So he demands to know from them if this is true, but then without waiting for an answer, he simply repeats what's required of them. He's giving them a second chance here. If they bow down and worship, then there's no issue. If you, if you do what I say right now, there's no issue. But if they don't, they will immediately be cast into a furnace, cast into the fire. And this is actually a smart way, I think, for the king to find out if the charges are true. He doesn't have to take one person's word over another. All he knows that at this point in time, the Chaldeans said, these guys didn't bow down. Okay, let's find out if this is true. He's giving them a second chance. If you do this right now, he doesn't have to rely on them as witnesses. He's saying, you get a chance to do it right now. Do it, and we're good. You don't do it. You go into the furnace. And he'll see whether or not they'll do it. Now, up to this point, all this is bad enough, right? The king is requiring false worship, which isn't a good thing in any case. But what he says at the end of the verse is especially ignorant, arrogant, and downright foolish of him. Look at the very end of verse 15. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now he's throwing down a gauntlet, right? He's now crossed over into the business of pitting himself against who? Not just these three guys. Now he's putting himself up against God, basically. He's making this a general statement here, but Nebuchadnezzar knows the God that these men worship and serve. He's been in awe of him before, but now he's summarily dismissing him. Now it's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's turn to speak. They have now the opportunity to defend themselves. The ball's in their court. And it's precisely at this point that we need to stop thinking of this as a story and realize the gravity and the reality of the situation here. This is literally do or die time for these three men. 
This is actually really do and die time. Because what these three guys are facing right now is really no different than if someone were to come up to one of us right now, point a gun in your face, and tell you to denounce Jesus Christ or they're going to pull the trigger. That's an extreme example. That's a horrible thing for us to think about, but that is literally the situation that these guys are finding themselves in right now. You either bow down to this image or you are going to die immediately. Well, in verses 16 to 18, we'll see the faith of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. You notice there's no, O king, live forever statement here. There's, they're not trying to impress him with formality or ceremony. They cut right to the issue. We don't need to give you an answer. Now, this isn't an arrogant statement. It's simply truth. It's their way of saying, king, there's really nothing for us to say here. We don't have any defense before you. They've been caught disobeying the king, and there is no defense in a human court for that. All that they can do is accept the consequences for their actions, and they know that that means that they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now in verses 17 and 18, these are a couple of my absolute favorite verses in Scripture. Because in these two verses, you get the epitome of a faithful response to an impossible situation. They say in verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That in and of itself is a powerful statement. Here is a, their firm resolution on the issue. What God can save us out of your hand, you asked? Our God can. Our God can save us even out of a furnace of blazing fire. That's a remarkable statement, if you think about that just for a minute. What what are they saying? If you throw us into a fire, a blazing furnace, God can deliver us out of that. How many of us can really, and I mean honestly, say that we would have the faith to say that in this situation? Use that in our defense. That is a powerful statement, and it shows their complete confidence, their complete faith in God, over and above the authority that Nebuchadnezzar had over them. I mean, they're standing there. He's ready to kill them. And they're saying, our God can save us from that. But as awesome as that response is, it gets even better in verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let let that one sink in just for a second. There is no doubt in their minds that God can save them from that fire. And they believe that he will save them from that fire. But they also know that they don't know the will in the mind of God. They don't know for sure what God's purpose is in this situation. Maybe he's not going to deliver them. Maybe they will perish in that furnace. 
they at least acknowledge that is a possibility. How does that change their response to the situation? How does that affect their decision in light of the danger that's before them? It doesn't change it at all. Right? It doesn't change it at all. Whether God saves them or not doesn't change the fact that they are going to remain faithful to him and they are not going to bow down to any other gods. Truly a remarkable response from these three young men. Now as we come to verse 19, we see the end result of their decision to remain faithful to God. Now we know the story, we know the account, we'll see, this, we'll see as we go through this, the final verses in the chapter that God will deliver them from this furnace, but keep in mind, and whenever you come to this passage, don't ever forget this as you're reading through it. At this point in time, as they were standing before the king of Babylon, they did not know what was going to happen next, other than they were about to be thrown into a furnace. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His facial expression was altered. I think what this is saying here is that he was so mad that he gave them one of those looks. You know the looks that someone gets when they get so mad, so absolutely enraged that they can't even think straight. That they think, you think they're about to explode right out of their skin. And I think that's what Daniel's depicting here. Nebuchadnezzar is so enraged, so furious, that anyone would dare disobey a direct command from him that it showed on his face. And so what does he do? He commits another rash act. He says, he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now I have to ask myself when I read that, how, how is this even possible? How would you know if it was seven times hotter? I, I imagine this as Nebuchadnezzar's way of screaming out, I want the furnace to be a million degrees. Just make it as hot as you possibly can. I mean, he was out of his mind angry with these guys, and he's blown a gasket here. He was bound and determined to make this as horrible of an experience as possible. And so he makes this irrational demand. But then he follows it up with another one in verse 20. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And so the command is given, we have a blazing hot furnace, and in order to make sure that his commands are carried out to the letter, he has his valiant warriors carry out this punishment. And these wouldn't be ordinary soldiers. He's talking here about, about champions. He picks the strong men. He picks the men who have proven themselves in battle for him. These were his elite troops. Now, why does he use valiant warriors for this? Because he knows that whoever does this isn't going to survive. That furnace is that hot at this point. These men have proven to be faithful to him before, and he knows that they won't fail him now. Plus, they alone have the strength to get close, to get close enough to throw them into the furnace before they die. He wants this to be their last act before they die to get these guys into that furnace. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar knows this, realizes this, and yet he doesn't really care. That's how out of his mind enraged he is. 
So these men are sacrificial lambs to his rage and anger, and this task will prove to be their last. But they do carry it out. Look at verse 21. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. So they get tied up with their clothes still on. Just, just wrap them up as is. They don't wait. They don't allow them to put their garments aside. They don't allow them to get their affairs in order, anything like that. Just tie them up. They're tied up. They won't try to panic and escape they're, as they're going into that hot furnace. And that's exactly what happens. They were tied up tight, taken to the top of this furnace and cast down into it. Um, I don't know if we have a clear picture in our minds of what this furnace probably looked like, but it, and a lot of times there would be like a, some type of opening at the top uh, for the heat and the smoke to escape, um, and then maybe a, um, some type of opening at the bottom so that things could be put in and out of it. Probably a large, very large industrial type of furnace, most likely used for when they were building the, the statue or some of the buildings that were probably around um, this area here. Um, but either case, they have this, this opening at the top, something at the bottom, um, and the indication here is we see details surrounding uh, the action that um, it was accessible from both above and below. So these soldiers take them up probably to the top and throw them down into the fire. And we see the collateral damage of these soldiers in verse 22. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those, slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here we see the valiant warriors wasted by the king's irrational rage. But this verse also serves to show us something else. We see the conditions that these guys are going to be saved out of. Right? They hadn't been tossed this, you know, you can, you can sit there and say, well, the, you know, they survived because the fire is not really that hot. No, that's not the case here. They're not being tossed on top of a campfire. Um, they were thrown into the midst of a furnace that was so hot that even those that got close enough to throw them in were killed just from being that close to the heat. So that's how hot this thing had gotten. And we're told in verse 23, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. So they didn't escape. God didn't make them disappear or take them away, uh, make them disappear, or the valiant men didn't slip and miss. Nothing, nothing like that, whatever ridiculous things people say. For all intents and purposes, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, at this point in time, gave their lives for God. They obediently followed his will, remained true to the commands of his word, right into the flames of certain death. I mean, basically, these guys were martyrs. But the end of the story says they live. Well, I get that. I know that they live, but I know what's coming next. You know what's coming next. But they didn't know what was coming next. The king didn't know what was coming next. The Chaldeans didn't know what was coming next. The other Jewish captives didn't know what was coming next. When these three men were thrown down into those flames and everyone around saw them go in, and the men who threw them in died from the heat, they were as good as dead. And there was nothing on this earth that could save them from what had just happened, save them out of Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
When we think of those who had the courage to die for their faith, we ought to think about these three guys right along with them. But fortunately for them, God had another plan. Look at verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. The king, of course, is watching this all from a safe distance, but something he sees astounds him. Something isn't quite right. And I picture him standing up. He's looking in the furnace, wants to see the result of his anger, right? Wants to see these guys just burn down to nothing. And he gets up, and I can see him counting on his fingers. One, two, three, four. Four? He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. Uh, how many did we throw in again? Was it three or four? Yes, O king, it was, it was three. So something's not adding up. Verse 25, He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. They threw three men in, but now there's four. And that's not even the most amazing part. What's truly significant is that these men, they're no longer tied up. But they're loose, and they're walking around in this furnace. You can just picture that, right? Here are these three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, just pacing or walking around in circles. Whatever they're doing, they're walking around in there. Not really sure what they're doing. I don't know what I would do if I was in the midst of a blazing fire and suddenly realized that, hey, it's not hurting me at all. What do, what do I do here? But they're not in any hurry to get out. They're not heading for the door or trying to climb up the side or anything like that. They're not panicking. They're just walking about in the fire, not harmed by it at all. Now, as we've already seen, there's a fourth character here. Someone is in there with them. They didn't throw anyone else in. And he's, but he's there nonetheless, and there's definitely something different about him because even the king sees that there's something different about that one. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So this is no ordinary man. Obviously, there's something that stands out about him. So it's not a stray guard that fell in. It's not, um, uh, this, this fourth man is noticeably not someone from around here, basically. So some think that this may be the pre-incarnate Christ, um, those that want to say this, uh, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, point out that Nebuchadnezzar is calling him a son of the gods, and they say that this could be a reference to the Son of God. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one that's saying this. Uh, he's a pagan king. He would have no idea what to expect or what the true Son of God would look like or anything about him. I think what's most likely happening is that Nebuchadnezzar is using this phrase in a general sense to uh, simply refer to him as a divine or some type of supernatural being. Again, there's obviously something different about this one. So the fourth person is from the gods, is what he's really saying. And in fact, in verse 28, he refers to him as an angel. And quite frankly, I think that's what we're seeing here. God has sent an angel to protect these guys in the fire. And part of his purpose was most likely to calm them and reassure them while they're in there. And it works. They're as calm as they can be. And in fact, they're so calm that the king has to tell them to come out of the fire. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came, down, came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. 
and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. He has to call them out, like someone calling their kids to dinner. Come on out of the fire, boys. Come, come out of there. But I think significantly, what Nebuchadnezzar here, when he sees this, and he sees that they're in there, and he calls them out, he remembers. He now remembers to acknowledge the God of the Jews. He now is reminded of the power of the Most High God. He asked before, what God is there that can save you out of my hands? Oh yeah, your God can save you out of my hands. And that's exactly what he did. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the midst of the fire. Now everyone is around. All of those who had been obedient, who had fallen down to worship the image, are all witnessing this, seeing what is happening to these three rebels, these three troublemakers. Verse 27, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. They're all around. They're all astonished. They all had to see this for themselves. And what did they see? Their bodies were not burned. No hair on their head was singed. Their clothes were not damaged at all. And here's the one I find to be the most remarkable. The smell of fire had not even come upon them. Anyone that's ever been around a fire knows that you, you don't even have to get that close to a fire before you smell like fire, much less be in the fire. I'll bet everybody else smelled like fire around there, but these three guys did not. God wouldn't even allow the smell of the fire to touch them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar once again sees which way these winds are blowing, and he responds accordingly in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. What's the king doing here? Some look at this and say that, oh, this is Nebuchadnezzar truly converting. That he's repenting of what he's done, and he's finally recognizing the power of God. I don't think that's what's going on here. If you look a little closer, I think we really see what he's doing here. Nebuchadnezzar isn't acknowledging the one true God. He's acknowledging in his mind the God of the day. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God wins. He's now my favorite God because he just did something that's really, really cool. When I was a kid, you know who my favorite football team was? Chicago Bears. Whoever won the Super Bowl the year before. They won the Super Bowl. What's that? <laughs> that's when I was a kid. That's what I'm saying. But why were they my favorite team? Because they were the team, right? They were the best team, so they're my favorite team. So for several years, that's how I picked my favorite football team. You know, growing up in Lincoln, I don't have, you know, there's, there's nobody around here, right? But for several years. So in my not mind, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He, God just won the Super Bowl. And now he considers him to be the best God of all. But unfortunately, he doesn't consider him to be the only God. 
What is impressive in what he says in verse 28 about our three heroes here? He says, His servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. What's that? His arrogance doesn't disappear. No. Right? No. It's like, these guys violated my command. I'm still number one here, but... Right. Right. But hey, that worked out for them. And, and he's probably a little shaken, right, by what's just happened because he threw down the gauntlet and he lost. Right? No one... What God is there that can beat me in this? Oh, their God just did. Oh, that one. The same one that came from Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I think this is what makes these guys heroes and what separates them out from the rest of the pack, from the pretenders and the wannabes, if you will. They put their trust in God. They yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own. And they sacrificed everything they had for the sake of obedience to the Lord. And that was their testimony before the king of Babylon. And in the case of these three men, we see that their testimony actually proves to be instrumental for the rest of of God's people as well. Look what the king does in verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. The king is impressed. Not again, I don't believe, impressed to the point of salvation, but impressed to the point where he makes this decree. They are free to worship God, which they would have done, continued to do anyway, but now they can do it without fear of reprisal. And the rest of those in Israel, of, of the nation, of the Jewish nation, um, can worship God this way as well. Especially in light of the fact that the rest of Judah had either already been brought back to Babylon or they would soon be brought back to Babylon. This decree is significant. This paved the way for God's people to officially be able to worship him freely. And we see again that God was still taking care of his people. He used this, even this situation, to care for his people, show that he has not abandoned them. And I like how the king makes his usual threat here as well. The same one he used back in chapter 2. You'll be torn limb from limb, houses made into outhouses, yada, yada, yada. Um, And we know how Nebuchadnezzar does this. And the end result was very beneficial to these three faithful men. Verse 30, Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. If you think the Chaldeans hated these guys before, what do you suppose they thought now? Now they could not legally say anything against their God, and the king caused these guys to prosper even greater than they had before. Because of their faith and God working in their lives, they prospered greatly. And we're out of time. So let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be in your word. Lord, I thank you for the book of Daniel. I thank you for these examples of these men that uh, lived faithful lives. I thank you, Lord, for um, just the way that you have cared for your people um, in every situation throughout time, throughout history. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you provide for us even today. Um, Lord, as we face trials, as we face difficulties in even our own lives, I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that we can rely on you, Lord. And and even when, uh, Lord, our prayers are not answered the way that that we think that they should, but they are always answered the way, Lord, that, that you intend for them to be, 
just pray that no matter what the outcome is of those, that, that we would be looking to you, Lord, and, and our faith in you would not waver ever. Thank you, Lord, for constantly taking care of us. I thank you, Lord, for allowing us to um, just honor you with the things that we do. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us today as we, um, as we worship you in the next hour. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to just honor you, Lord, with the, uh, the things that we say, the way that we fellowship with one another, Lord, and the things that we do as we, um, as we hear your word, as we listen, as we pay attention, as we uh, take these things in, Lord, and use them in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.